Hello and welcome everybody. Uh, this is Simon Taylor, Associate Director at Rue Pedersen Public Affairs in Brussels. Uh, and I'm talking to my colleague, uh, Sam Rubansky, who is a consultant uh, in the energy and climate team uh, here. We've been, uh, like most people around the world, um, looking on and really struck by what happened uh, in Texas last week um with the uh, really exceptionally cold weather um there were temperatures of something like minus nine degrees uh and the seasonal average for um that part of the world that state which is you know in the south uh, of the us is uh it's normally uh, about 25 degrees higher than that um so it was really an extreme weather condition but we're going to have a talk now um about um why the the power system in texas failed so spectacularly um and what lessons there might be for the european union um, which is obviously um, embarked on its own energy transition, its energy transformation the, under the European Green Deal with the ambitious targets of uh, achieving net zero emissions by 2050 and a 55% reduction in CO2 emissions uh, by 2030 um, compared to 1990 base levels. So, um, Sam, uh, what 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 strikes you most about um, the, the 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 situation um, in, in in Texas with your experience of the energy sector? Hi, Simon, um, and good morning to all our listeners. Um, what strikes me the most, I I think there are two answers to this, or uh, it would be a two pronged answer on my end. Uh, one would be the sheer size. Or the sheer uh, the sheer scale of the blackout. So you had uh, basically rolling blackouts that struck all of Texas. You had about three million people without power, and still do. So first would be the scale, the, the absolute massive scale of the blackout. Second would be that, um, and it appears to be a combination of both still ongoingly high electricity prices and damage down to the grid, that even after over a week that it's been going on, we still haven't managed, or Texas hasn't managed to come back to business as usual. So those would be the two things that struck me the most. The fact that the sheer scale of the rolling blackouts and the fact that the, the grid still hasn't been restarted, even though it's been over a week now. And is, is the cold weather still ongoing or is that eased off a bit now? So, I mean, is this, is this damage caused by the extreme cold spell or is it, is it an ongoing issue? So... The, but the temperatures are not as extreme as they were when the blackouts first happened, but the damage to the grid has been done. So now the temperatures are still very cold. So you will still, the demand for electricity is naturally still high, perhaps not as mm -hmm. high as it was when the blackouts occurred. And perhaps the grid is not under as much strain as it was before, but the damage to the grid has been done. And, and before mm -hmm. that gets repaired, um, it will be some time before being back to business as usual. So even though the weather is not extreme as it was, the, con the, the, the consequences of that weather extreme event are still felt. Yeah. So let's just, let's just deal with, I think, maybe the point that is sort of our point of entry on this or, or our focus is, is um, uh, the role that wind, uh, wind turbine, wind power generation um, did or didn't play. Now, um, some uh, people in the US, particularly from the Republican Party, were very quick uh, to blame the failure of wind turbines and say there is too much reliance on wind. There are a lot of, I understand, 
uh, wind turbines in Texas. Um, what what's your take on um, you know was wind to blame? Was are there too many wind turbines in Texas? Um, so I'll I'll start with a direct answer, but then I'll circle back a bit to uh, to explain to our listeners um, how the electricity market works because it's not like any other commodity market. So first, no, the the excessive amount, as the Republicans would say, of uh, wind turbines is not to blame. Um, what is to blame, though, is are the price incentives in the market that help the integration of renewables. What do I mean by that? Um, in in a power market, you can and and in, and I know that energy specialists will you know sort of look for the nuances in my argument. But essentially, you can think about having two markets: a wholesale market and a retail market. That's what the companies buy and sell. That's the, so that's the so so on the wholesale market, it would be the companies. The, the electricity generators selling to retail electricity providers and to, to big companies, to big factories, to your steel and aluminium production plants. Yeah. And then in retail markets, that's where the distributors buy off of electricity generators and sell on to the people. Um, and, and so, so first, this is, you, this, is, this is what has to be borne in mind. Second, in, in the wholesale market, you have these so-called balancing services. So as, as you probably know, and as our listeners will know, the, the electricity grid um, has to be balanced at all times. So there is... In, so a balance between supply and demand, so they make sure there's enough power in the, in the grid. Okay. And, uh, and you, can't have, you can't have too much power either, because that's also... Yes. So for example, in the European, uh, in, in the European grid, uh, this is... At, so grid always has to be at 50 hertz. If you have too high a supply, uh, it raises about 50 hertz and, and the tolerance is really, really small. So you immediately have to either decrease demand or increase supply when, uh, when this happens. So this is, this is what has to be understood. And uh, the way that this electricity is traded is that it's traded, I think in Texas, uh, I might be wrong here, but I think it's at, uh, in 30 minute intervals. So you, you either buy power on a day ahead market or in, in a long-term market, but a lot of the power is traded in half an hour intervals. So wind turbine says that I think based on meteorological uh, forecast that I will be able to generate such and such amount of electricity in the next half an hour. And I want to bid uh, this electricity for such and such price. Um, and whenever, for example, that wind turbine fails to deliver on its commitment, the grid has to be balanced. So it's either that the demand, uh, for example, has to be decreased. So some industrial plant somewhere or some household somewhere will probably have to reduce their demand, it's usually industrial plants, or the demand has to be momentarily increased, which is when in Texas, for example, the gas uh, generators would step in and immediately generate those missing few megawatts, kilowatts, uh, whatever is, is missing. Well, there's, there's a key word, missing few, because they weren't a missing few, were they, in this, uh, in this, on this occasion? Yes, and, and this is where we're getting. So, so, so in Texas, what, uh, what happened, and, and earlier reports suggested this, was that the, the gap in demand and supply was as much as 30 gigawatt hours. Now, I come from Slovakia, and in Slovakia, mm -hmm. this would be 10 times the hourly demand of Slovakia. So, and, and that's just yeah. the demand yeah, and supply yeah. gap, not, not the size of the system, but the demand and supply gap. So a huge yeah. supply and demand yeah. gap. And of all, and off, off this gap, there was roughly four gigawatt hours that were supposed to be generated by turbines missing, and yeah. as much as 26 
missing right. from gas plants. Okay. Okay. So, right. uh, yes, I think we're and getting to that question when we compare which energy source was supposed to deliver how much electricity to keep the grid balanced. Um, we see that it probably wasn't uh, those probably weren't the wind turbines. Right. What about um, so these were extreme circumstances. Um, so there are and, you know, um, now you should design your uh, energy grid to deal with extreme circumstances and there's a couple of ways that you do that i mean one is um if you don't have the energy you need you you bring it in from elsewhere through interconnectors um or you have um, capacity reserve you know you have sort of a backup capacity that you bring online when you need it um, now, I understand um, that uh, Texas is uh, has very few interconnectors or is, you know, badly interconnected, whatever the, however you put it, and also has very little reserve capacity. Is, is that right, Sam? So on interconnectors, it's not badly interconnected. It's not interconnected at all. Uh, the reason behind this is for ERCOT, so the, the, ener the Texas electricity grid to, to basically uh, not be subject to FERC or the Federal Energy Regulator in the US. Um, in terms of... Uh, Sorry, so that, that's an interesting point. Why is, is, that, is that a classic example of Texan independence uh, or uh, what, what, you know, why, why, why would you want that? Why would policymakers design the system that way? Well, we're going to get it with the capacity mechanisms, but there are a lot of standards for how a safe uh, electricity grid um, is supposed to be designed. Um, to ensure that when you have a power generator or a, or a, or a demand side source um, removed from the grid, the grid can react accordingly. Um, this obviously incurs further taxes, but I, I would say that this is obviously part of the politics of Texas and that yes, they do want to avoid federal regulation to the greatest extent possible. But it also, the federal regulation and the standards contained therein place additional costs on the grid. Um, and uh, you know this would increase. This would introduce taxes that will have to be paid uh, upon the consumption of electricity yeah. that were not there before, which obviously is a politically contentious issue. Um, yeah. As our European listeners will be uh, will be aware, the way that the capacity or the balancing reserves provision works in the EU is that states pay generators in advance. So so you reserve your um, your balancing uh, capacity or, or you reserve. That's why it's called a capacity reserve. What this means is that you, for example, tell a, a gas plant that you would like this gas plant to be on standby and to be running without being connected to the grid and whenever there is an imbalance in the grid you sort of you know in very simplistic terms pull a lever and that uh, plant goes online delivers that missing few megawatt um, hours of power and then goes offline again once the original energy provider or the contracted energy provider on the wholesale market uh, is, is able to uh, continue delivering on its commitments. So, for example, you would be paying a gas plant to be running on five, uh, to be a five megawatt gas plant to be constantly running, running, running. Then when you suddenly have a power outage, you, you, you connect that plant. And when the, the original provider of that power is back online, you disconnect your capacity provider. This is not the case in Texas. You don't have capacity reserved in advance. It's all about the anticipation of demand. So you provide the balance, uh, you provide the balancing service, but you're not mandated to provide that balancing service. So you can decide to, if it's obviously, if, if there's a business case for it, but you don't have to. And in uh, in Europe, basically the fact that you are reserved by your national government obliges you to provide 
that um, that uh, that that power to balance the grid. Okay. Now, now the, again, this is at risk of being a little bit technical, but I understand that the the way the system is designed, there was an incentive to have lots of capacity by having a high price cap for the maximum amount that you could charge, which was nine thousand dollars megawatt hour. Um, and that was reached during this crisis, uh, during the, I mean, during the, uh, the, 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 the cold spell, the, the freezing spell. Um, and, um, but as one downstream effect of that, um, well, first of all, the capacity wasn't, wasn't there, um, uh, so it didn't work. But now you're seeing, you're reading reports, I don't know how widespread, of, of households being presented with huge bills. And at the same time, some energy companies, obviously depending where they are in the, in the generation distribution chain, um, uh, expecting record profits for, the, for, the last, for, the, for that quarter. Um, now, this is a difficult question. So politically, do you think that's tenable? I mean, or is that, you know, you could argue it's a once in a decade event, once in even a, in a generation event, and therefore you couldn't reasonably expect. But do you think that do you think the politics, the politics in the US and in Texas are going to force a change in the system, Sam? I mean, what do you think there will be enough outrage over the outage um, to, to bring about a change in the approach? I mean, I know that's a difficult question, but just I'm asking you to speculate a little bit. I am bit. going to speculate. What I'm first going to say is that you, you rightly pointed out, um, it's an important point on this being a once in a lifetime or once in a generation occurrence. And um, and the reason so from a, from an, and this is where, for example, the economists and the politicians differ. For an economist, this doesn't necessarily present a problem because in the long term, the electricity prices are still very low. Right for a politician, this is a problem because during their mandate, someone is charged a right. large amount right. of money okay. uh, yeah. to yeah, to, yeah. to cover this sure. sort of black swan event. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's also worth noting, or, or or delving into why these prices occur. So basically, on the wholesale market, um, electricity generators bid what is called their marginal cost of generation. So exactly that, what it costs you to generate that megawatt hour, that doesn't take into account fixed costs, but because different Provide so that what it costs you to build the plant, but um, when um, when when a more expensive generator uh, bids for power, then uh, you know say I'm a nuclear generator, I bid ten euros a megawatt hour, and the and, and the state buys this power, and then they need more power, so they go to or they say that you know we'll we'll purchase this power, and then there is a gas provider who bids for I don't know thirty euros um, a megawatt hour or thirty dollars if we're if we're in the US. And when that happens, and when the marginal megawatt hour is delivered by someone who asks for $30 a megawatt hour, then everyone gets $30 for megawatt hour. Even the nuclear provider who was bidding 10 euros in the first place. And that way, the nuclear generator can bid at his, their generation cost, but also in the long term, recover their fixed cost because they're getting a lot more no, than it costs them just right, generators. Okay. But, what hap but what happens when that last guy delivers that one megawatt hour? This is where the scarcity theory pricing comes in. Well, with the one megawatt hour that he delivers, he needs to cover both his uh, marginal costs of generation and his fixed costs. And that's right. why the final megawatt is really super expensive. And that's why, for example, in Texas, this is capped. Now, yeah, and, and this brings us back to the politician versus economist argument. This doesn't matter for the politician because the base price of electricity will be kept really low. 
that 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 marginal megawatt hour that's generated yeah, during yeah. the peak hour gets lost in all the other cheap hours during the year, or yeah, or during yeah. the ten years yeah. or twenty years. When yeah, you're a politician, yeah. when you're supposed to be bearing that cost of that marginal megawatt hour, well, it becomes a bit more problematic. So, will this force a political change? I don't think so. But what it might force is that it will force a slight change to how the electricity system in Texas is designed, how the market is designed, and probably steps will be taken to ensure that these that the, the cost for the marginal megawatt hour will be borne over a long term through some form of taxation or grid fees or a sort of additional price component of a retail use electricity bill than has been the case until now. Now, this will increase the wholesale price of electricity in Texas, probably, because that will be a pass-through cost. But it will also, or, or that cost will be passed through onto the consumer, so both retail and wholesale prices will go up. But at the same time, uh, you will not see such drastic spikes in retail, wholesale and, re well, wholesale, yes, but not in retail prices. Um, I want to sort of bring us back across the Atlantic to Europe and... Um, uh, go back to our initial point of entry. So the EU is also going to be um, uh, integrating far more renewables um, into the grid, into its grids. Um, it's uh, going to move away from fossil fuels for power generation. Um, we've got these ambitious targets for uh, emissions reductions for 2030, net zero by 2050. What lessons, are there any lessons, I mean, for European market design, for policy makers, um, from what's happened in Texas, or maybe maybe it's not relevant because Texas is the lone star state. Um, uh, what do you think, Sam? Any, any useful lessons for our policy makers? I'd I'd start I'd start on a positive note. I'd started rather than from from the point of rather than there being lessons learned, there is a big pat on the back to be had uh, by the European Union for having taken steps to secure the power grid in, for example, the 2016 Clean Energy for All Europeans package, where new standards for securing the grid were introduced, where powers of Acer, so the agency overseeing, um, right. So the, the, the electricity systems regulator were strengthened. So th th first, I think there is a huge pat on the back to be had. Second. Because what happened in Texas is unlikely to happen. In, in, and, and unlikely to happen in any member state. I mean, is it is are all member states protected from that kind of situation or are some more vulnerable? Some must be more vulnerable. than So we, we are in a better situation precisely because we have uh, the, the system of capacity reserve. We, we have the sort of the, um, we have high standards for grid security. So there is this N minus one standard. So, you know, can the grid withdraw? Can the grid withstand if one of its components suddenly becomes inactive, either on the supply and demand side? We have very high standards for that in the EU. But the one lesson to be drawn, and, and that takes us back to the debate on interconnectors, is that we need to be, Europe needs to basically continue pushing for high rates of interconnection. Why right. is that the case? 
right now, for example, it would be impossible because of the strains put on the grid to, I don't know, use a, a, a gas generator, a gas generated turbine in uh, in France to balance out a an outage of a wind turbine, a gas generator in France to balance out a wind turbine for a, a outage in Slovakia, simply because, yeah. It, it, yeah, it would not be possible. Mathematically, yes, physically, the grid would not be able to withstand that. We already see this in Germany that uh, you have all the power sources in the north and thanks to the nuclear yeah, decommissioning, yeah. Yeah. all the industry yeah. in the south is left without any power and, and that often yeah. uh, puts a lot of strain on the grid. So so the lesson there to be learned is, you know, continue interconnecting Europe to ensure that different points and different nodes in the energy system can sort of support each other both in terms of the supply and demand response. And we do have we, we do have a regional energy market approach, don't we? Or, or, or are we sort of so that, you know, so that energy markets are sort of conceived on a regional basis? I mean, no one would really expect France to bail out Slovakia in a crisis, but you would expect France to, you know, there are interconnectors between France and Spain, between Germany and the Netherlands, so on and so forth. So that is correct. But what you also have to bear in mind is that when we move towards greater inter, uh, great integration of renewables, these these renewables will have to be built somewhere. And you have some uh, you have some geographic spots in Europe that are more favorable for the installation of wind turbines and for solar turbines, yeah. and some yeah. that are not. And and these places where all of the wind and all of the sun will be built, and and these will be likely concentrated in places like the Iberian Peninsula, like the French coast, like the Belgian coast, like the Black Sea, like um, the North Sea. Yeah. Uh, but these will the, this electricity will have to be distributed across Europe, and at the same time, right. if, if this if if this if these turbines break down and and these um, uh, solar panels need to undergo maintenance, there will have to be conventional sources that will back them up, and these will probably be, you know, where uh, in in countries where such sources can be provided on on the cheap, really. So that's why the interconnection across you. And what will what will what will that be? Will it because um, uh, I, I mean I was reading about what happened in Texas. It's a very gas. It's a it's a gas. I mean it's a, the primary energy source is gas. I mean people use uh, obviously electrical heating for their homes, but I think fifty three percent of the of the energy is generated from gas. Um, you know, so actually, you know, there could be a case. I mean, I, I read a report by the International Energy Agency that said, you know, we you have to have a resilient gas supply network. Is there an argument in Europe? Because there's a huge argument about whether whether you um, you know whether you prolong the life and the reliance of, or, or maybe you know that you uh, capacity mechanisms are another backdoor to keeping fossil fuels going a little bit longer than they might. You know, if you were if you were really serious about decarbonizing the energy sector really quickly, you wouldn't even have um, gas as part of your capacity your reserve. It is indeed. Um, it's a I very would provocative say that question, this Sam, currently is a question of cost. Um, okay. Simply providing flexibility with gas is extremely cheap. Right now, here right. is here is here is what. Now, Jeffrey Sachs, uh, who I think will be f a familiar persona for uh, for a lot of our listeners. Um, is one of the best economists on sustainability. He and, and one of the main advisors on sustainability to the UN Secretary General among his place in the Columbia uh, University yeah, yeah. In, in New York. Yeah. He's, he's a very well... And he, for example, argues, and many um, electricity economists argue with him, is that renewables can provide um, flexibility for other renewables. 
Right. Uh, if you have a cloud over Spain, but a very windy uh, day in the North Sea, that electricity can be used out to balance out what, what's, what's missing in Spain. At the same time, if it's too windy, you can simply slow down wind turbines and you don't have to uh, uh, execute any uh, demand side response. This is the utopia. Uh, renewables in different places balancing each other out through a well interconnected. I was going to say, it comes back to you interconnectors, doesn't it? You need a lot of... Uh... Exactly. But before that is the case, gas is, I, I don't know if I should say unfortunately, but it simply is currently the cheapest form of providing right. flexibility to the grid. Batteries are too expensive. Hydrogen is still in a very nascent stage. And we have a hydrogen strategy, so we might be seeing... You know, hydrogen being that the provider of that flexibility, although, you know, going from electricity to hydrogen back to uh, electricity again is a very inefficient process, but nevertheless a green one. Um, or we use batteries. We use, we use battery storage and we use batteries for yeah. this kind of response. But then you have the question between how, for how long can a battery back up a power system? Is it 15 minutes, yeah. 20 minutes? C can it do a day, two yeah. days if you have uh, weather loss? So currently it's, it's not, it's... The role of gas is not, uh, you know, a one of, uh, uh, it's, it's not a role, gas is not there as a sort of a backroom solution of the fossil fuel industry or sort of a backdoor solution to, to keep burning fossil fuels. It's simply there because it's the most economic way to help integrate renewables into the grid before we have more greener and cheaper solutions. Okay. All right. Sam, so we're running out of time now or are we getting near to the time we should bring things to I'm going to ask you, um, but I think maybe you've already provided us with your with with your summary. Sort of, um, you know, looking across to what happened in Texas uh, and uh, what the situation in Europe. I mean, you've um, you've already said. I mean, you think we should congratulate ourselves, or, or we should be pleased at what we've done so far. Are you confident? Maybe just as a finishing question to wrap things up, will that will that resilience that we've achieved compared to the situation in Texas. Do you see that continuing over the, you know, out to 2050? Uh, absolutely, 100%. Now, I will say that I see it continuing, but I do think it will need to be backed up by appropriate policies. Uh, I talked about the development of storage and flexibility, and I talked about the development of the grid. All of these investments, the EU can't bear them alone, and these are risky investments with high upfront costs for, for, uh, for private capital providers. So there will have to be a set of policies that will help incentivize private sector investment into grid development, into storage development, into flexibility development. And if, if, if these policies are enacted and we're obviously or anxiously awaiting, uh, we've seen some push in the 10E regulation revision and we're awaiting the Fit for 55 package. But if this continues, then yes, I'm, I'm confident that this resilience will continue. And um, I think Europe is on the right path. Great. Sam Rybanski, thank you very much. Fascinating conversation. I hope we can do it again soon. Thanks to all our listeners um, for um, uh, here on the Rude Pedersen podcast. Thanks for listening today, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye.